Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is the Great Big History Podcast. Here we continue History 101, Part 3. We are now in our final part, where we do East Africa, Part 1 of our African series. So we're going to do East Africa from Kushite Pyramids to Zanzibar's Markets. East Africa civilization that we're going to start talking about, the oldest of the ones centered on a kingdom called Kush, which controlled much of the Nile Valley from the second cataract, really, to the fifth, sixth cataract. That first to second cataract it's kind of this no man's land. We talked about this when we did Egypt. It's it's kind of a frontier. The Egyptians will eventually claim it as their own, but Kushite kings did the same. So it's this you know frontier where Kushite African Black African peoples lived as well, kind of wanting to get away from the taxation and the control of their of kings, uh, just like Egyptians did, uh, who moved south. So. But that should show you that there's already integration. Kush develops alongside Egypt, and there's an economic and cultural connection. Why? Well, as developed as Egypt is, it can't do it in a vacuum. Great. It has the Nile. The Nile floods. It does so for Kush as well. It's, the Nile is the richest river in the world, in the ancient world. So that tells you that Kush is going to be fairly rich as well. The Egyptians are going to need to trade with someone. They need stuff. Every civilization needs stuff. And Kush is their easiest connection. So there is, from the very beginning, Egyptian and Kushite relationships. Because you need to trade with someone, and so you need Kings, you need a government, you need organization. So when um, Pharaoh sends diplomats, they know who to talk to, who represents these people. And when merchants want to make a trade deal, you know, you're going to build pyramids, you need a lot of stone. And a lot of that stone is going to come from up the river. And so... You're going to need workers and labor and, and later on mercenaries. You're going to need all these things, but you need someone to negotiate with. You just can't walk into a town and say, hey, we want to sell stuff. So the simple age of Egypt forced the people around them to also develop. So East Africa is as old as Egyptian civilization. It develops right alongside of it. So you have this economic and cultural connection. You're going to notice that this is the theme in my my two classes on East Africa and West Africa. Um, that a lot of the belief that Africa is behind and uncivilized or barbaric or what, uh, you know, the heart of darkness, the Joseph Conrad heart of darkness, is just racism. It's not history at all. And so I guess I, we got to get that out in front. Um, East African kingdoms are pretty much richer and older than anything in, in Europe. 
That's just the way it is. So they're developing alongside um, Egyptian pharaohs. You know, the Egyptian old kingdom, well, Kushite kings are almost as old. Now, Kushite kings had infantry armies. Now, remember, we talk about the old kingdom. They don't have an army. And later, the Egyptian new kingdom, 2,000 years later, will create an army, but it will be a Mesopotamian chariot army. Black African kings, Kushite kings, had infantry armies. This shows a sophistication. You have kings, you have armies, which means you have taxes, which means you have governors, which means you have the entire infrastructure to make weapons, shields, spears for these armies. You can feed them. So the very fact that Kush has armies tells you East Africa is as advanced as any other place we've talked about. You have sophisticated kings, sophisticated economic systems. Kush even takes over. Kush is taken over, excuse me, by the by the New Kingdom Egypt. Remember, New Kingdom is conquered for a brief time. It's wrecked by the Hiskos. New Kingdom comes out of that tragedy. And so what do they do? They go east into Palestine, Cana, and up the up the Levant to Syria. And they go up the Nile. They go south in order to protect themselves. So again, showing this integration between the two. Later, after the Bronze Age collapse, Kushite kings conquer Egypt and become the 25th dynasty. And so what we see, again, is a cultural and economic integration between Egypt and Kush. We have pyramids in the Sudan. We have African pyramids. They're not as big as the Egyptian Old Kingdom pyramids because Kushite kings didn't have as much money. But nobody had as much money or time as Old Kingdom. We're talking 2,000 years later. The world has changed. There are other things to spend money on. But having conquered Egypt, they said, these pyramids are awesome. You know what we need? We need some. And so there are pyramids in the Sudan, in Africa. We also get black pharaoh sculptures, this combination between the art of Africa, of black Africa, of Kushite art, and Egyptian art. So we can see that these kings of the 25th dynasty represent themselves both as African, but also as Egyptian. In the style, in the sculpture, in the motif, they are combining the two. And so we see culture going north into Egypt, and we see, we see African culture going into Egypt and Egyptian culture coming down into Kush because of these, these conquests. So we have the transmission. Now, later on, that's the transmission to Greece and the Middle East. There's a book called Black Athens or Black Athena, um, which came out when I was in college, I think, or maybe a little earlier. But it was the idea that Athens is the foundation of Western civilization, which is pretty much the historiography 
of the last 500 years, right? It's, it's, it's Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian are your four parts that kind of make Western culture. And we're starting to get more in the Germanic and the Scandinavian and um, remembering the Orthodox, you know, the Eastern European Orthodox part, Slavic part, but the traditional Western kind of bit racist idea, the historiography was European culture came from four places, Greece, Rome, Judeo religion and Christian and the Christian um, annex of Judaism. Well, if it comes from Greece, the argument of this book, Black Athens, is, well, the Athenians took a lot from Egypt, which is undoubted. There is no historian who will say it didn't happen. Plato flat out tells us Greeks took a lot from Egypt. Well, the Egypt's Egyptians took a lot from Africa because they were in contact for 3,000 years. There's food. There's, there's um, art. There's DNA. People hooked up, had kids. So the idea that there's always this movement, and since the 1500s, people kind of forgot that, and they forgot it because it was lost, and then racism came in. and But there is this this African Egyptian culture that have these strains in it that then is exported to Greece, to the Middle East. Whether it's through the Persian conquest of Egypt or Alexander's conquest of everything, or then the Romans coming in and conquering everything. That in the Greek and Roman period, we see this cultural transmission continue. Now, Cush will give way to other kingdoms, Nubia, Mero, Ethiopia, um, that's not modern Ethiopia, so that's why I put the A in there, the A, A Ethiopia, it's Roman Ethiopia. Um, though there is a connection, cultural connection to between the two there, you know, um, want to be sure that's there, but I don't want you to go, oh, it's the same country, because it's not. It's, it's, it's the predecessor, you know. And with the conquest by Alexander... And then by the Romans, you get this connection to now the European world. So instead of to the Egyptian world and through Egypt to other places, the Middle East and maybe to Greece later on, now it's mainlined down the river through Egypt to Europe. Christianity. We see many saints and especially hermits go up the river wanting to get away from things. They leave Alexandria. They go to Thebes. They're like, there's too many people in Thebes. And they go past the second cataract into Nubia and set themselves up. So we see the, the transmission of, of Christianity. Mercenaries. Romans were perfectly happy to hire black African mercenaries. In fact, an Ethiopian was the, was, there was names, there was Nubia, which was kind of given to the name south of Carthage, south of the Phoenician lands of Carthage, so the Saharan. Um, you have Nubians and you have Ethiopians as kind of a catch-all for essentially black people. So they were perfectly ha happy. I mean, you would not go, a good Roman general would not go really anywhere in the Mediterranean world without um, West African Nubian um, horse infantry, uh, horse cavalry, 
light horse troops, like your scouting troops, your fast attack troops. You know, they learned by fighting the wars with Jugurtha that those are the kind of guys you need. But there were also infantry troops from Ethiopia as well that came down the river, down the Nile, into the Roman world, were perfectly happy to uh, hire them, incorporate them, and become Roman. Remember Nascio. So there are black Romans roaming around the Mediterranean world. And not like one, like lots. There's also the, the continued resources for trade. East Africa maintained its relationship to Egypt. It's just now a bigger world. So it provided resources, mineral wealth especially, to, to Egypt. Well, now Egypt's part of the Greek and the Roman world. So it provides mineral wealth and other things to the Greek and the Roman world. So you get this cultural and economic and demographic integration. So you get the mix of black African and European culture. And in if you're watching the video, the most obvious is black Jesus and black Mary and the black apostles. Big why? Well, if you're African, Jesus is black. Why would he be anything else? And that's the that's how you represent him. Remember, there's no photographs. No one knows what Jesus literally looked like. There's no images in his time. So uh, there's an artistic theory in, in art history that Jesus is basically what beauty is. Since Jesus is the, quote, perfect man, how do you represent him? You represent him as beautiful. So if you want to know what beauty looks like, look at the representations of Jesus, especially as an adult, not as a child. As a child, you get a lot of old man faces, especially in like European Renaissance, because that's where you would put the guy who's paying for the picture. You plop his face, you know, you plop this old man's face on, on, uh, on baby Jesus, and you do Jesus and, and Mary, the Madonna, e baby, and boom, you get paid, right? The guy's happy. He's Jesus. You're happy. You got paid because you're the artist, and the Renaissance keeps funding itself. There's a video on YouTube by Vox.com, the news organization called Why is Why are there so many old man faces on G, on baby Jesuses? And it's worth checking out. But here we see this integration. East Africa is part. It's a far part. It's at the edge of the world as far as the Romans were concerned, but it was part of it. It is as part of the world as Britain is. It is more part of the Roman world than Germany is. Remember, the Germans at the Battle of Tudenburg Forest kicked the Romans out. East Africa has a trade, economic, cultural, demographic connection. So we get this mix. African culture goes up the river to the Roman world, and Roman culture comes up the river to the African world. That is lost and replaced by the Islamic expansion in first Arabia and then North Africa and Egypt in the six and seven hundreds. So the Arab conquest in the six and the seven hundreds changes who East Africa can connect with that, that going down the river through Egypt will now, as Egypt converts over from Greek Roman, from Coptic to Islamic, the, East Africans convert along with it. They they make accommodations. 
So you get a new economic and cultural connections. Their trade to across the Red Sea, to Arabia. All right, if there's Muslims there and Muslims want to, uh, the Arabs are now Muslim. The Muslims want to deal, make make trade deals with Muslims. And that's where you can like go to mosque and meet these guys and make a deal afterwards. Okay, we'll convert. And so that Arab and Islamic connection, we start with the Arabs, but it becomes bigger than that. It becomes Islamic, replaced the European connections. And this is one reason why European racists, uh, a thousand years later, will be like, oh, there's, there's no history uh, in, in Africa. Well, it's because they got cut off. They got cut off. All the, all the trade routes were recon, reconfigured from Europe, which was poor and in the Dark Ages, to the much wealthier Islamic civilizations. So again... Nubia, Mero, Ethiopia, go down the river into Egypt. But now you're getting these connections across the Red Sea to Arabia. So you get the Nile, you get the east coast of Africa, you get start to have an Islamic conversion. The Ethiopian highlands around the Nile remain Christian. It's much harder to get to. Remember the cataracts cut you off. So the early cataracts, right, the second cataract to the third cataract, that becomes Islamic because that's easier to your connection to Egypt. But once you get to the fourth, fifth, sixth, what is now called South Sudan, the country of South Sudan, that's Christian. In Ethiopia, the highlands of Ethiopia are going to remain Christian. The interior remains Christian. Because why would you convert? It's hard to get up there. It's hard to... To have those connections, you and it's really hard to conquer it, which is which creates this religious warfare between the coast and the interior, and the main purpose for that is slave trade. Islam has uh, slavery, allows for slavery, just like early Christianity, the Roman world did. The Greek world had slavery. Remember, there's Greeks, Romans, Muslims, all had slavery. Um, and so you have the slave trade. Remember also, um, Germans and Vikings had slave trade too. So, so we have the slave trade connecting the African Christian interior to the Islamic coast and to, from there to Arabia. So like Christianity... See, kind of rule one of Christianity is having been slaves to the Romans. The kind of rule one of Christianity is Christians cannot hold other Christians as slaves. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Professor, that's going to change. And yes, that is a major part in our 102 class where we talk about African slavery and European slavery, the European concept of slavery. That is very different. But this is why slavery kind of dies out in Europe in the Middle Ages, in the late Roman, early Middle Ages period, because Christians cannot own other Christians as slaves. Well, that's Islam too. Muslims can't own other Muslims as slaves. It's kind of rule two. Rule one is there is one, God Allah, and Muhammad is a prophet. Kind of rule two is you can't have another Muslim as a slave. I know there are other pillars, 
but in all practical economics is like you can't do this so but where are you going to get the labor from right muslim men are off conquering the world arab men there aren't a lot of them they're off conquering the world they're going all over the place they're going from india all the way to the, the atlantic so you need labor and so like the romans you get non-arabs well, if the East Coast of Africa are converting to Islam, you can't absorb them as slaves, as workers, and they're willing to trade with you, which means you now need non-Muslims to be your workers. And so what the Arabs do is they go to the East Coast Africans and they say, we need workers, we need slaves. And they go, great, we have the interiors where we have pagans and Christians. So we have heretics and pagans. You're totally allowed to make war on them and enslave those people. Now, in the future, you will convert them to Islam, but this becomes the methodology of connection. The interior of Africa is has religious warfare, primarily for slaves that are then brought to the coast. From the coast, them and mineral resources are then sent to Arabia and the larger Arab world, the larger Muslim world. So what we get is this trade, mineral wealth, coffee. The most famous thing that comes out of East Africa is going to be coffee. Um, Muslims are going to love coffee much more than tea. It's going to be coffee. That's that's. That's going to blow their minds because a lot because a lot of the religious ceremonies are long and a lot of religious study is a lot of texts, a lot of words. So you're studying this late into the night. You also have Ramadan where you fast. Well, if you're thinking being hungry all the time, fasting is real hard during the day. And so what do you do? Drink coffee. The caffeine makes you less hungry. It speeds up it. it you know, gives you the jitters for your metabolism. It's why people drink Red Bull. It's why Starbucks is so famous. It's why all diet pills are essentially just caffeine pills. You know, taking two diet pills is like taking 10 Starbucks, you know, <sighs> coffees, like just injecting them into your veins. And it, so coffee is going to explode as a important uh, cash crop. Again, mercenaries. Again, mercenaries. East Africans will be perfectly happy hiring their services. They have lots of experience in war. Um, they have lots of experience in very diverse terrains. And their infantry. The Arabs, having grown up in the desert, are cavalry. And so... Afri so you hire these African infantry, African mercenaries as infantry to offset what you're really good at, which is cavalry, to make yourself a more complete army. So, again, mercenaries, just like the Roman world, will go into the Arab world. And then there's slavery, which we talked about, which will continue about into the early 20th century and will take about 10 million people. 
And this shows the Islamic coast versus the non-Islamic interior, as we talked about. So that 10 million people over about 1,400 years shows that while slavery is important, while slavery took 10 million people out of the interior of Africa, it was less industrialized, less massive than what's going on in West Africa, which is 15 million or so people done in roughly 300 years. So it's more people in a lot less time. It also tells you that European slavery is different than in Arab Islamic slavery and it works differently. All of these things, the trade, the mercenaries, the slavery, all show that East Africa is one third of a massive global Indian Ocean trade network. These cities along the coast are rich. Their elites are educated. They're independent. They are part of a wider Islamic world. Africa provided raw materials and labor. Arabia provided the manufacturing, manufacturing, while India provided the luxuries. And this is also an oceanic trade, as opposed to the Silk Road, which is kind of more famous, which is has a a a naval component, but is really famous for being overland. The East African trade routes are on the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, the Arabian Sea. And it's this, just like we talk about in history, the Atlantic world, Europe to North America, North America to the Caribbean, Brazil to Africa, back to Europe. There is a triangular trade in the Indian Ocean that is a thousand years earlier. So what does this show? This shows that Africans are integral to the most advanced civilizations on Earth from about 3000 BCE to at least 1200, to sacking of Baghdad by the Mongols. And this shows up again and again and again, as we talked about in trade, in war, and in cultural transmission, art and architecture, but especially in trade and in war. Africans travel, they trade, they preach, they learn, they teach, and they make war from the Atlantic to the Himalayas to the Pacific. So the idea, again, that the Africans are behind or uncivilized is just European racism. There is no history to it in East Africa. East Africa is old, is sophisticated, it is connected. It is civilized, it is educated, it is prosperous. The Zanzibar markets off the coast of what is modern-day Tanzania are part of a major stopping ground of the East Indian Ocean trade. Coffee is being sold. Slaves are being sold. Mercenaries are hiring themselves out. Sailors are hiring themselves out to go to India, to Indonesia, to the Pacific. They're going to Arabia. They're bringing mine. They're bringing gold. They're bringing uh, silver. They're bringing mineral wealth from the interior of Africa to the coast, putting it on these boats, sending it to Arabia to be manufactured. They're bringing coffee from the highlands down to the coast, selling it into the 
Islamic world. So with that people go and they're doing their jobs and they're finding their their lives and they're making love and they're starting families and they're settling down. They might be the only African for a hundred miles out in, you know, Kazakhstan. But they were part of that Islamic world and they could go those places. So that's East Africa. In our next um, lecture, we will do West Africa, and we will talk about the kingdoms of West Africa and the Sahel. So we'll talk about Ghana and Mali and Songhai, and we'll talk about the great military kingdoms, and we'll talk about Mansa Musa, the Hajj, uh, and uh, Timbuktu, the Great Library, the African University. So be careful, be safe, and stay healthy. See you soon.